So I'm going to explore <clears throat> a little bit um, what might be meant by words like God, gods, divine, etc. I've been using a fair amount on this retreat. <clears throat> and um, explore a little bit how we can relate to that, how we might relate to those words, ideas, what conceptions might uh, make those kinds of ideas useful for us, fertile, uh, enriching, opening. And I'm very, very aware, as I think I mentioned, that that, uh, using words like God, God's divine, other words like that, um, that for many people, hearing those words, reading those words, coming across those words, um, brings a reaction, sometimes a very strong reaction, uh, all kinds of reactions, in fact, um, and sometimes negative reactions, uh, constricting and blocking and um, ad- ad- adverse and aversive reactions. Sometimes people just get nervous um, around those kind of words. Um, they are, for for many people, uh, loaded words, um, and we can tend to bring quite a bit of baggage to those words and those uh, concepts and those ideas. Uh, and a lot of that comes from our history, and the cultural history, and perhaps upbringing and, and uh, experiences <clears throat> when we were young. And some of that might include quite a bit of woundedness in certain situations and contexts, religious contexts or education or upbringing, all all, all kinds of ideas that were unhelpful. Um, So I'm aware of all this, and and perhaps even more so aware, uh, or more importantly, aware of how easy it is to bring assumptions and preconceptions and even more so really quite simplistic notions, unhelpful notions, um, to, uh, to those words. And when we hear them, we immediately think this is what is meant, that that's what is meant. And a barrier comes up and something constricts and we, people argue and it's rampant in the culture right now, this sort of atheist... Uh, um, relig- so-called atheist, so-called religious debate, and 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 the whole thing is taking place on a, a really quite uh, um, literalized level, literal, <coughs> literalized, simplistic notions, sort of battering against each other. Um, so people might entertain the idea of an old man with a beard on a cloud judging as if that really exists, or the creator of the universe, and and this sort of thing. So uh, aware of all the history, the possibility of woundedness that we might have, but but it's really um, these assumptions, preconceptions, notions that I want to um, open up, hopefully, and and, uh, hopefully render useful and creative a little bit um, in in these talks. So some people actually... Uh, the word divine is a better word than than uh, God. Um, <clears throat> in Tibetan Tantra, the word yidam is is the, the deity, the tantric deity. Uh, and they talk a lot about, uh, as we mentioned, uh, seeing appearances as a divine, knowing appearances, sensing appearances as divine. This is Tibetan tantric language and talk about 
primordial Buddha, primordial Buddhas, cosmic Buddhas, all this. So again, the question, how can, is it possible, or how might it be possible to open up these um, words, really these concepts and ideas, uh, so they become, again, the ideas related to this word eidos, what we look through. How can we relate to um, such ideas that they become useful and fertile? Is that even possible? So I want to try, uh, emphasis on try, um, exploring, describing, elaborating on um, uh, conceptions, possible conceptions and experiences. So conceptions and experiences, those two always go together. Conception and experience always, always, always go together. Um, Possible, some of the possible conceptions and experiences of the divine divinity, etc., that we might have in practice and in life, um, related mostly to what we've been talking about. There are many possibilities here, both for the conceptual frameworks and for the experiences, many. And this is something I really want to emphasize and probably come back to later um, regarding the sort of infinite. Uh, uh, range uh, and plurality of possibilities for the experiences of the divine and the, and the conceptions of the divine. So I'm only going to talk, uh, obviously, about some. Um, and some of the ones I'm going to talk about can actually mix and infuse each other. Now, obviously, because uh, we're constrained for time, I'm going to have to be brief. And I'm going to try and explain as clear as as clearly as possible, some of these ideas, some of these um, ways experience open. Um, but some of what we're talking about now, um, really, the, the ideas and the experiences really depend um, on ex- on understanding, a deep understanding of emptiness. Um, and some of the experiences will also depend on a deepening deep experiences of emptiness in practice. So, um, for those of you who are not yet that familiar with that whole territory, it, it might be, it might be quite elite, but it might not be, so I'm not, I, don't, I wouldn't assume either way. But, just as an aside or related to that, you know, um, I have been thinking, I think I mentioned er- earlier in the retreat, uh, quite a lot about um, you know, what a good idea it might be to think more in terms of a curriculum, in terms of Dharma teaching and insight meditation teaching. Um, because it makes, uh, it makes a lot, could make a lot more possible. It's like, okay, now you've understood this, now you've got these, developed these skills in practice, you're able to experience this, you're able to open that way, you're able to have this or that kind of mystical experience, or this or that sense of well-being or dissolution of dukkha, and now, now can we build on that? Now that you've got that understanding, etc. Can we deepen that? Can we open a further door? We've opened these doors before, can we open other doors? Uh, Without a curriculum, sometimes what happens um, is teachings of just the basic sort of teachings at the same level get repeated, and it's actually hard to move on without people feeling like you're, you're losing them or feeling very uncomfortable or judging themselves, etc. And the fault is not so much in the person um, or so much in the teacher or, or the way of teaching, it's, it's in the lack of curriculum and the lack of a sort of basis established both in understanding and meditative kind of 
art, if you like, that then allows um, a further deepening and a further building. So the whole thing, the whole teaching and the range of the teaching gets quite constricted. So, I said, hang in there, I said, said that in, in a couple of talks ago, hang in there if it's a little bit difficult with the concepts. It may take a few listenings um, and may be something, some of this may be something for, that fills out more as your, as your um, understanding of emptiness and your practice um, with emptiness uh, deep deepens. And by the way, uh, uh, and this is something I will emphasize hopefully again and again, that when <coughs> um, I talk about God and the divine or that kind of thing, or gods, always, 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 that God, a God, the divine, etc., is empty. It has no inherent existence. Um, so I'm not postulating something having any kind of um, inherent or independent existence. Sometimes that's hard for people to understand. They just assume with that word that one is postulating that. Um, but I'm not. And <clears throat> we'll, we'll repeat that. Now we could say, well, we could ask, why bother especially if it, uh, some of this is going to be complicated and maybe difficult to understand and sort of a little bit elaborate sounding. Why bother um, talking about these uh, concepts and conceptual frameworks? Well, for a couple of reasons, uh, at least. One is, um, one is in terms of, uh, well, both in terms of soul and soulfulness. The first is, there are, aspects of soul that love ideas, that love conceptual frameworks, and it's part of the play of the soul. It feels almost like a necessity for, for um, some aspect of the soul to, uh, for its life, for its vitality and its vivification. And uh, secondly, um, soul and soulfulness and soul making needs a, a conceptual framework and conceptual frameworks that um, allow it, allow for soulfulness, soul making, that enrich soulfulness and soul making, that nourish it, that actually are wide enough to give it space to grow. Um, so the ideas, the conceptual frameworks, the logos that we are entertaining needs to have enough space so that the soulfulness can grow. And also the, that uh, allow experiences, so that's part of the soulfulness. Um, the conceptual frameworks need to be wide enough to allow a range of experiences. We've said this before, this is so crucial, so often uh, people are living a life and practicing in a way, harboring conceptual frameworks that are uninvestigated or unarticulated, unconscious, and that perpetuates a very narrow range of um, experience, both in life and in meditation. So the conceptual framework, conceptual frameworks um, can function, or we want them to function, like a fertile womb a space that's actually fertile, things can grow and expand, and, and maybe even the conceptual framework, actually, importantly, the conceptual framework itself can also grow and expand and stretch. So soulfulness, soul-making, needs conceptual frameworks that support it. And if we, uh, well, we could put that with Greek terms, psyche needs logos. Psyche needs logos. Psyche... Uh, 
needs a, a, a logos or logoi that from the plural that support it, that enrich it, that deepen it, that allow it. If the logos, the conceptual framework, is too narrow, then um, the, the, the possibilities for soul and soulfulness and soul-making are narrowed, are constricted. It's no longer fertile. There isn't the possibility of deepening, enriching, widening, stretching the vistas of experience and of psyche. So, for example, um, probably the uh, assumption or idea, conceptual framework that images that appear to one are just uh, the result of random neuronal firings in the brain. This, that kind of idea, that kind of conceptual um, <clears throat> notion uh, is probably not very fertile to soulfulness and soul-making. And there's uh, many others, uh, ways of explaining things that seem so attractive as truths. Uh, especially in modernist culture, that actually kill, stifle, constrict uh, soulfulness and soul-making. Okay, so let's let's begin and um, just, just for now divide up, say, four possibilities. I said a lot of these overlap and, in, and can uh, infuse each other and mix, but let's let's delineate at least four possibilities um, for experiences um, of, of the divine that are possible for us. So the first, and we've, um, I've mentioned it uh, several times already on this retreat and obviously elsewhere, is that it's possible for a person, much more possible for a meditator, to... Um, know, to realize, to experience, to open to, actually the language of how to put it breaks down, but to know, realize, experience, open to what is unfabricated, the unfabricated, where um, there is not the fabrication, usually through meditation, there is the cessation of the fabrication of any sense or perception of any object whatsoever. Anything or object whatsoever, or any oneness, uh, totality of objects, um, no fabrication of perception of object, no fabrication of perception of any kind of subject, even the most subtle subject of just a sort of bare moment of consciousness or a vast awareness or something like that, embracing all things. No fabrication of the perception of objects or subjects or time. Not the past, not the future, not the present. All those um, uh, uh, very fundamental, the most fundamental structures of experience, subject, object, time, space, all this, not being fabricated. And then, so to speak, what is left then is the unfabricated. It's not just a blank uh, unconscious, like being in a coma, it's the unfabricated. Um, we talked about other uh, ways of putting that. We talked about uh, Avicenna in the, the, in the Islamic tradition, talking about the darkness that reigns forever. We talked about the Jewish mystics, Ayin, which translates as nothing. We talked about the Neoplatonist One. Um, all these are actually uh, pointing to, to the same thing, articulating the same transcendent uh, 
um, experience, transcendent opening, unfabricating, transcendent reality, if you like, um, in, in different language, struggling to find the words there. It's there definitely in the Christian mysticism of Meister Eckhart and uh, St. John of the Cross, people like that. And uh, to 20th century um, theologians and philosophers, for example, Franz Rosenzweig uh, talks about the God that is before all relation whether to the world or to himself, the seed point of the actuality of God. And he draws on the philosopher Schelling, uh, notion of a dark ground, etc. Different ways of talking about it. In Buddha Dharma, um, again, different. the Buddha describes it in different ways, uses different language. Um, perhaps the clearest is the unfabricated, and it's a way of conceiving of some of the whole... Uh, process that moves towards that, if you like, learning, as I said, through uh, developing the art of meditation and learning how to basically fabricate less perception, less appearance, less experience, just gradually, gradually, starting at the, probably for most people, starting at the levels of horrendous and painful solidification of self and other and issue that happens in Papancha and just learning, oh, through letting go of clinging, identification, certain gross clinging to conceptions, that can um, fade away, cannot be fabricated in in a certain moment. And I say, oh, that's interesting. Let's take this and develop the skill, basically, of learning to let go of clinging, um, and I'm using that word in the broadest possible sense to include identification and subtle concept, etc. Learning to let go of clinging um, more and more deeply and at more and more deep and subtle levels. In, not forever, but in, in a moment, as a practice of meditation, in different ways. And as I do that, I see the world of appearance of self, object, um, and eventually time and space, and all that gets fabricated less and less. Developing that skill, developing that art in lots of different and beautiful ways, um, I go deeper in this journey of learning to fabricate less. And eventually there's, whatever we call this, realization, experience, opening to the unfabricated. So this is a realizable, experienceable, if we use those words, and not even quite their right words. We can open to that. We can know that if we know how, if we develop the know-how to um, fabricate less in any moment. Not to live in a kind of unfabricate, which is impossible anyway, but learning as what meditation is, oh, or part of what meditation is, as we talked about um, on other talks, learning to fabricate less. Now this unfabricated, and again I mentioned this before, the Buddha, it's so transcendent and transcendent of concepts also, that the Buddha describes it in three ways. Often he just says, you can't say anything about it, it's so transcendent. Where all phenomena cease, all ways of speaking, all manner of speaking ceases. He says, uh, I think in the Sutta Nipata. Um, other times, and probably most often, he talks about it as so common in um, in these mystical traditions that reach this level. Talk about it in terms of negation. It's not this. It's not that. There is the absence of this. The absence of space. The absence of time. The absence of thing. And so it's uh, sort of what corresponds to the via negativa in Christian uh, mystical teaching. It's that not this, not that, neti, neti, if you know from the uh, Vedanta teachings. Uh, 
And then the third way sometimes the Buddha talks about it is, is in a sort of positive affirmation as a kind of consciousness, different than our usual consciousness, um, transcendent and without object and without support and not of time, etc. Consciousness without attribute, without feature, uh, as the Buddha describes. Now, why am I wanting to call that divine? Well, almost like I say, well, if that's not divine, I don't know what is. Um, Utterly transcendent, utterly beyond time, timeless, uh, and therefore deathless. So that's a word the Buddha uses uh, at times, deathless. Um, The deathless. And... uh, in many senses, there's this knowing that one has really a profound, profound and utterly transformative um, knowing of what is divine. People talk about in the theological traditions, the Godhead, God in his, herself. And this is possible for an insight meditator to know, as I said, just, just knowing how to go about it, go on that journey. So there's the experience of that in a way that's utterly transcendent, that um, <clears throat> totally beyond any appearance whatsoever of any subject at all, any object, any time, etc. And then there's also the possibility, either before one has fully opened to that, but more often afterwards, um, of this unfabricated, this deathless, um, if you like, uh, I say shining through appearances, shining through the appearances of this world um, in different ways. This sense of a timeless dimension to things, a sense of uh, a sense of this transcendent, unfabricated, this deathless, uh, if you like, dimension, if you want to call it. The Buddha sometimes uses that word. Um, we could say shining through appearances and transforming the sense of this world, the sense of life and death and, and, and self and other and all of it. Uh, so, so precious, utterly, utterly precious uh, for a human being to know that and to taste that and to open to that. So that's the second possibility. There's a sort of pure, transcendent, unfabricated, no appearances whatsoever, utterly beyond all experiences of subject, object, and time. And then there's the way that can actually, the authentic experience of that can kind of shine through the appearances of this world in different ways. Thirdly, um, oftentimes what what I hear from people, uh, less so recently, but used to be uh, quite a lot in other circles, is people use the language of the deathless quite a lot, um, and and or someone might say, I'm practice, uh, I'm describing their meditation. I'm resting in the unconditioned. Uh, that all I do is rest in in the unfabricated, um, etc. And that that kind of language. But really, what they're talking about is some other state. It's a state, an opening, a perception, a meditative perception that is 
um, if you like, a lot less fabricated as perceptions go than normal, everyday, conventional perception um, that most people have most of the time. But it's it's less fabricated than that, but it's not yet uh, completely unfabricated. So it's not really the authentic unfabricated or deathless. And there's many, many possibilities. There's too, way too many to describe now. Many possibilities. Um, all of them very beautiful and lovely. Again, some of them may be um, uh, senses completely closed in some kind of jhanic uh, way um, and transcendent in that sense, transcendent uh, of, of the senses. And some of them, or the very same states, have kind of versions where they're more um, uh, the senses are more open. And again, there's this um, experience or feeling or perception of that um, dimension, that particular particular dimension, whatever it is, shining through this less fabricated dimension of which there are many shining through appearances. And as I said, there are many. Very, very um, common in our circles and uh, sort of related spiritual circles, not just Buddhists, would be the experience of one love, one kind of cosmic love or cosmic compassion pervading the universe, woven into the fabric of the universe. And oftentimes, you know, people um, just doing um, a meta retreat or meta and compassion over some weeks um, will eventually organically, without even me suggesting it, open to that experience. And in a way, I'm oftentimes kind of waiting for that to happen, not not as the be all and end all at all, but as one um, one opening, one perception that's uh, so beautiful, so enriching, so supportive, and and so helpful. Um, and at that point, uh, th- those people often start using theistic language. There's a flavor, a sense of divinity that permeates um, that, uh, that love. That love has the flavor permeating the universe and, and surrounding one, holding everything, has the, has the flavor, the taste of divinity. Even if the person has never used those kind of words before, never had that kind of experience before, never had that upbringing. Another one, uh, pr- probably even more common in insight meditation circles, is similar kind of thing. But the the what pervades um, the the universe or pervades all appearances is awareness, and this can come in lots of different flavors. I don't have time on this retreat to differentiate between them. But there's kind of um, a oneness of all things in one awareness. Sometimes people call one mind or big mind or there's lots of different versions in this cosmic consciousness and sixth jhana, different variations of the sixth jhana. There's many, many things there. Um, but the divinity is in the awareness, this awareness that is universal, not just mine, not just in here, in my body, in my brain, looking out at the world, but everywhere. And all things, uh, uh, if you like, are that awareness or express that awareness. <coughs> um, or, or it can be just one physical substance or one energy, um, and one one sense a person senses the oneness of all things in terms of um, matter, physicality, substance. Also, very beautiful and a kind of holiness, a cosmic oneness that can uh, um, be a be a an experience, or if you like, a a level of of divine, of an experience of the divine. All of the many more. All of these are are beautiful and um, precious, you know. Um, But but none of those that I've just described and what I'm talking about now are um, 
openings or levels of perception, levels of less fabrication, but they're not quite the, um, the authentic unfabricated because they still involve time. And they still involve a sense of the present moment, they still involve a perception of space, and there's still a very, very subtle sense of, of subject and object. But still, there can be a sense, an experience, and also a conception there of, of, of divine divinity. There's also um, a whole um, range of levels of experience of, of divine oneness that come from recognizing that everything shares uh, in the nature of emptiness, in the nature of um, being empty. And that understanding of being empty can be at lots of different levels and bring with it different levels of a sense of oneness corresponding. So <clears throat> there's the transcendent unfabricated sort of experience, if you like, if we can use even use that word experience, um, of the divine beyond, beyond appearances. And then there's different ways that we can experience the divine uh, through or in the appearances of the world, the appearances of, of others, etc. Uh, the different ways that that um, sense of the divine can shine through. And these also can be, uh, we can think, in, in uh, split them into two camps. There's a kind of universal, uh, in other words, the divine shines through in a universal way, and usually in an impersonal way. Um, so, for example, when the, the unfabricated shines through, it's universal, and it's shining through everything, and it's um, impersonal. Maybe easier to see it in some situations than others, often in nature, etc. But, um, but it's still, one, one gets the sense that it, we're talking about something universal and impersonal here. And in a lot of those other states, for example, one cosmic... Uh, love or compassion pervading the universe, one awareness of which everything is the play, uh, etc., of which uh, uh, everything um, has the substance of awareness, whatever, these kinds of openings. These are also universal and impersonal. But there's a fourth possibility, which is uh, what we are kind of leaning towards more on this retreat and emphasizing more, is the sense of a divinity um, through uh, uh, shining through a person or a thing as a particular theophany, a particular face of divinity or, or, or of a particular divinity. So it may be uh, an Im imaginal figure or a, a person or a thing um, seen as image, seen through the lens um, experientially of, of mythos, of, of, of fantasy, or whatever. But not universal, uh, particular, uh, and um, uh, not impersonal, but personal, involving personhood. So this is, this is, is uh, what I would like to um, hopefully unpack a little bit, or, or um, see what we can explore and um, uh, give as possible support um, in terms of conceptual frameworks for. Is it possible to um, open and provide or even begin offering conceptual frameworks for um, a notion of divinity 
that can um, include and allow and support and nourish um, a whole wide variety of experiences of the divine that are not just of a transcendent divine or of a universal impersonal divine, but this, but of a particular um, theophanies, in whether they're as I said imaginal figures or um, the imaginal in and through persons and things. So my life, my personhood, your life, your personhood, or someone else's, um, as seen as, um, experienced as, sensed as, and conceived of as the expression, uh, the manifestation, or appearing as the manifestation, expression of of the divine, of, of particular, unique faces of divinity. Is that possible? This is, this is really what I would like to explore. Just to say, too, <clears throat> as we go into this, um, it seems important to me, I mean, interesting certainly, but also important um, as uh, in, in trying to uh, offer or, or inquire into or um, explore various conceptual frameworks that might um, support and deepen and have a place for this idea of divinity or an experience of divinity, experiences, plural, of divinity. Um, it seems important in all that for me to um, tie it together with an understanding of emptiness and, uh, as I said before, to put everything, uh, the whole Dharma, on a basis of emptiness thoroughly. And so, um, how, for instance, does the idea of the exploration of fabrication, seeing what's fabricated, seeing how perception is fabricated, and the total way it's fabricated, and exploring less fabrication uh, until one opens to the unfabricated. How does that kind of teaching, that kind of way in to understanding of emptiness, um, tie together um, with some of these other ideas and conceptions and tie together with the imaginal? Um, and how does that experience of divinity as the unfabricated tie, tie in, or does it, or how does it relate to um, other experiences of divinity? So some of that tying together, and the relation is actually very simple, it's really just um, uh, a, a conception of the Dharma, as we've, we've alluded to briefly enough, outlined in a lot of detail elsewhere, um, the conception of the Dharma is this exploration of fabrication and different perceptions, um, if you like, are experienced, p- perceived, uh, appear, um, depending on how much fabrication there is. So an experience of cosmic love, so to speak, uh, is an experience of much less fabrication than your everyday experience um, where that's not present and selves and things and others seem very separate and very solid. So there is, if you like, a spectrum of fabrication that we can explore and different experiences of the divine kind of take their place on that spectrum of fabrication. Um, and and so the relationship is actually r- relatively simple um, once you get into exploring that. So the cosmic consciousness uh, is is relatively um, 
unfabricated experience compared to everyday experience, an experience of a lot of papancha, a lot of um, hindrances, a lot of self-building and other-building and issue-building is an experience of more fabrication um, and almost certainly less sense of divinity there. So some, some of the relationship is quite simple, fits quite easily, and uh, sort of mapped a lot of that out before. Um, but in relation to the imaginal and the idea of theophany, uh, um, this imaginal figure, or that person that I love as theophany, um, and the particularities and the personhood there, the relationship is, is not so simple. So in, in, in exploring some of this and elaborating on and opening out a little bit, uh, I'm going to draw on different conceptual frameworks. Um, some uh, are ones that I worked out for myself, um, and others uh, belong, uh, originate um, in other traditions, etc. Um, so remember when you're listening to this that no conceptual framework can claim ultimate uh, or complete uh, validity or truth. Cannot um, uh, claim to be the, the total truth or to, to be a true explanation of everything. Uh, any conceptual framework, there'll be some place where it either falls down or contradicts itself or inevitably, with any conceptual, relies on some kind of assumption that's ultimately unprovable. So rather than uh, searching or trying to concoct some kind of complete or final system, uh, metaphysical system or whatever, um, rather than that, and that's something I would actually very much be aware of if someone is claiming that or putting that forward, um, a system of true, ultimately true explanations, uh, finally true explanations. Um, rather than that, and rather than um, seeking a conceptual framework that then is provable. Rather than that, I'm interested in the idea of conceptual framework, the relationship with conceptual frameworks as, as doorways, uh, portals, the conceptual frameworks themselves, scaffoldings or structures that support our inquiry, our investigation, our the um, fertilization and opening of our experience, of our practice, of our meditation, they nourish and support um, psyche and, and the sort of meditative adventure and uh, all of that. So in, in, in what's, what follows, I'm, I'm going to try to tie together a few different conceptual frameworks, but it's up to you. There's no obligation here to take any package, and certainly I'm not presenting some polished, complete product at all. You'll quickly realize that. Um, you may gravitate towards one of these um, frameworks. You may uh, tie them together in the way that I do, or I'm trying to at least, um, or in your own way, or you may have some other conceptual framework uh, that, you, that you draw on um, to support the validity of and, and fertilize uh, Im, um, imaginal practice in the sense of the divine through imaginal practice. Let's start with what we've already talked about, this notion of um, fabrication of perception and the learning, the possibility to learn uh, the skill, the art in meditation of unfabricating to different degrees, of fabricating less perception. Um, and eventually to um, open to realize, ex 
experience, so to say, the unfabricated, what is unfabricated, this um, transcendent uh, dimension, if you like, beyond any subject, any object, any sense of time, including the present moment. Um, so, how does this unfabricating work? Earlier I said um, it's dependent on clinging, but we could also say uh, it's dependent on delusion. In other words, to the degree that there is delusion operating in the mind at any moment, to that degree will there be the fabrication of perception. Perception is built up, solidified, made more separate, made more intense, to the degree of delusion. Now, delusion comes clinging and craving, as the Buddha pointed out, but delusion really that's, if if you like, the, the kind of most important uh, supporting condition for the fabrication of perception and appearance. That's why it's first in, in, the, in the 12 links of, of dependent arising that the Buddha outlines. Uh, so when we look with delusion, when there's delusion in the citta, in the mind, in the heart, it fabricates more perception. Now, state papancha is full of delusion, isn't it? And that's why there's more fabrication there, more fabrication of self, more fabrication of issue, more fabrication of other, etc. Story, that whole structure is of the fabrication of perception. As there's less delusion, less um, belief in, in an inherently existing self, less... Um, uh, uh, belief in any of the subtle concepts that operate in the in the in the chitta usually, um, including belief in time and space and awareness or something. There's all all kinds of possibilities, and there's less clinging, um, and so the uh, appearance, the structure of appearances, the fabrication of appearances begins to fade. They begin to be fabricated less and less to the degree that the delusion is sort of not there. Or we could say to the degree that insight is there, there's less delusion there. Insight and delusion are, um, yeah, what do you call them, um, opposites, sort of um, inversely proportional, whatever the phrase is. So less insight, more delusion, more appearances. More insight, less delusion, in other words, less appearances. Until eventually um, we see that when, when delusion, in any moment that delusion is really drained from the citta, at that moment there will be this complete unfabricating of perception, of appearance, of experience. And one opens to, if you like, the unfabricated. And... We see oh, the, the world of the fabricated is built on delusion, we could say. The house builder that the Buddha talks about is built on delusion. That's why on his awakening he said, ah, I've understood. And there's not the delusion anymore, house builder, you've been seen. Um, and so in that sense, the unfabricated um, takes... Um, uh, ontological precedence over the, over the fabricated it seems more real because the fabricated seems the result of delusion. It also feels and a sense very much as if there's the holiness resides much more fully in the unfabricated than in the fabricated. Uh, so actually, through this very deep experience we're talking about now, but a duality is created between the unfabricated and the fabricated. One seems holy, so to speak, the other just to the product, or primarily the product of delusion. Fabricated through delusion, dependent on delusion, as the Buddha might say. 
But the journey, in the meditative journey um, in, into emptiness, the un- understanding and insight into emptiness doesn't stop there, hopefully. And we begin to uh, actually question, actually see deeper into the whole notion of fabrication, the whole structure of the teaching of fabrication, and actually see that because time is empty, because what is fabricated is empty, that actually fabrication itself is empty too. And then this is one way of one one way of dissolving the whole duality, collapsing the whole duality between the unfabricated and the fabricated. Um, and then there is not uh, this sense of the unfabricated is holy and the fabricated is not holy, for instance. All can be seen as holy and divine, both so-called unfabricated, so-called fabricated. It dissolves. Um, it, it takes the understanding and the um, meditative seeing and, and, and the being in the world to a whole other level. And in that seeing everything is equally holy, equally divine, um, th- th- there's actually a possibility of seeing it all universally divine or picking up this more divinity through the personhood and the particular that we were talking about. So, when, um, when, for instance, one um, employs a meditative way of looking for a time in, in a practice, or one sees in practice, um, deliberately practices a way of looking that um, delicately, skillfully holds the understanding, this awareness right now, this moment of awareness, this mind right now, is not self. Not me, not mine, as the Buddha says. And one holds that in awareness, and one sees also this awareness, this mind, at the same, at the same, in the same moment. It's not self. It's also not separate from the appearances um, that uh, are its objects. The subject and object, the mind and the objects of appearance, not separate. And one also, in the same moment, um, uh, holds lightly. Um, the skillfully the view the way of look in the in the view in the way of looking that this awareness this mind is um, empty in itself perhaps for instance because it's beyond time in the sense that time is empty anything that exists must exist in time and time is empty therefore this awareness is empty when through practice a very very deep practice I'm talking about one holds these insights very lightly delicately like an art and looks and, and, and meditates on the present moment. This awareness, not self. This awareness, not separate from appearances. This awareness, in a sense, is beyond time, is empty. Um, uh, and and the, time, the time that it exists in is empty. Then that awareness at that time, uh, because it has a lot of insight in it, and, and very little delusion, it's really cutting, dissolving delusion at a very fundamental level. Seeing that objects are empty, uh, we can include the objects are empty and the subject is empty. And then there will be an unfabricating to quite a deep degree. And the awareness, um, if we still talk in terms of awareness, it, it, it moves towards to some completely um, or to a large degree towards this consciousness without attribute that the Buddha sometimes uses as a phrase to describe the unfabricated. But it, it unfabricates. There's an unfabricated awareness or consciousness there, very different than our usual consciousness and not the kind of vast awareness that uh, I've mentioned at other times. But another possible one, one possibility of holding all that insight that very for meditators is really practiced and developed gradually these 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 uh, this art um, 
of unfabricating is one possibility. It, it unfabricates and it, it um, if you like, opens to this unfabricated awareness. Another possibility, though, is an even more artful is what can actually one can actually play with and modulate the degree of the fading and unfabricating of experience. And it's, it's as if like you're you're taking your um, foot just lightly off the pedal there, so that you're holding all this. Um, understanding of emptiness very, very lightly in the mind. It's not a great deal of thinking, but that insight is there. It's imbuing the awareness, and yet you're not letting it completely fade because you're not leaning on the insight too heavily. So it's very light touch, and so appearances are um, around, but they're imbued with the whole sense of subject, object, awareness, appearance is, is imbued with um, the, 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 under, the deep understanding of the emptiness of all of it, radical, deep, total emptiness. And it's possible then to play, because appearances are still around, it's possible to play with tantric practice, which essentially is a mimicking of um, a Buddha's I'm going to use the word gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, um, just as a translation of the Tibetan word yeshes, Y-E-S-H-E-S, um, particularly so that we don't get confused with words like insight or awareness or wisdom. So using all these words, sometimes the vocabulary gets so confused, people using different words or not realizing there's a difference. But the practice of Tantra is this mimicking of a Buddha's Gnosis, a Buddha's ultimate, let's call it wisdom awareness, as, as another translation of the word Gnosis. And that's one way of understanding what Tantra is. Um, the, in this sense, the word ultimate actually means um, ultimate because it's, the, uh, because it's what a Buddha has, uh, like a fully developed um, uh, being. So we've touched a little bit on this before, that in the Vajrayana, in the Tantric teachings, the, <coughs> the um, word ultimate is used in different ways. Sometimes it's used to, to refer to emptiness. Sometimes ultimate means um, what, what a, a Buddha enjoys or, or what is characteristic of a Buddha. And again, there's all kinds of confusion uh, and slipperiness with vocabulary. So... Um, sometimes in um, tantric teachings, in Vajrayana teachings, um, now I'm going to draw particularly on someone like Mipam uh, from the Nyingma tradition. He died in, I think it was 1912. Um, brilliant, brilliant um, mystic and scholar from the Tibetan tradition. And uh, from the Nyingma Tibetan tradition. And um, so he would use the same words like emptiness or suchness or ultimate in different ways at different times. But in their sort of, um, what would you say, deepest meaning, when he used them in their deepest meaning, they all kind of refer to the same thing. And another word is Buddha nature. And it's this ultimate um, sort of gnosis of, of a Buddha. It's a Buddha's perspective. So this Buddha nature, this ultimate, um, it actually in 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 his way of presenting what Buddha nature means, it includes the, both the subjective and the objective aspects excuse me, of this Buddha mind, this Buddha um, gnosis, this ultimate Buddha gnosis, both, both the subjective, and that subjective is this, this yeshes, this gnosis, this 
um, awareness that is empty uh, and and that knows emptiness. Uh, sometimes people use the word, this is an aside now, sometimes people use the word pure awareness, but awareness always has some degree of insight or delusion in it. And it always has, it's always mixed with other inclinations, some degree of clinging, etc., some degree of con- conceiving. But this idea of the, uh, of the yeshas, the gnosis, the buddha gnosis, is an empty awareness. It has no inherent existence, but it's a gnosis, it's a, an awareness that knows the emptiness of everything, including itself, space, time, all objects, all subjects, everything. That, that's what yeshes is from the subjective aspect. And the subjective aspect of the Buddha nature perceives the objective aspect of the Buddha nature, which is a world of divine appearances. Um, not just universally, like all imbued with divinity in, in a kind of universal way, but also particulars, particular deities, particular manifestations, and particular deities manifesting through particular objects or places or, um, or beings in, in, in the conventional sense. So all of that together, the subjective aspect, the, the yeshes, the wisdom awareness, the empty awareness that knows the emptiness of all things, and the objective aspect, the, the, the perceptions of, of the, the divinity and the partic- particular divinity of divine appearances, all that is Buddha nature in that, in that uh, in say, Mipam's framework. And all of it is the ultimate. Uh, so... It may be, I mean, not, not to confuse things, but, but there is a parallel here between some of what we've just been talking about and also um, the teachings of Isaac Luria, who was, I think, a 16th century Kabbalist living in Sfed, in Palestine, Safed, uh, I think you pronounce it, in Palestine. And he uh, elaborated a kind of mythic metaphor if you like for the or mythic metaphors for, for the for the aspects of the divine for the nature of 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 the divine and um, and in that aspect this is not to be taken literally certainly it's also not to be taken temporally but in that sense then the godhead the sort of innermost transcendent aspect of god um, the the light of God, if you like, the wisdom, the yeshes, the, the gnosis, if we translate between systems, um, or this unfabricated. Um, actually, let's let's put it in that in that other other system in the, in the unfabricated awareness. Um, exists, so to speak, and then uh, within that light of the. God, of God's wisdom, um, there's a withdrawing um, from a certain, if you like, region. Again, this is mythic. It's not literal. It's not even temporal. There's a certain withdrawing of God's own light from a portion of that light, so to speak. And that withdrawing creates a space in which 
create the creation of the world uh, happens. So you can actually see, I don't know if you can hear in that, that, that withdrawing is called simtum in, in Hebrew. Um, you can actually hear in that something akin to the teachings of fabrication and unfabrication. Cre- if we translate creation as the dependent origination of appearances, then you could hear it or read it as there is this unfabricated awareness when there's um, uh, in, insight and, and wisdom there to a total degree. If I, uh, so to speak, withdraw some of that insight or, as I said, don't lean on it so much or if some, I, um, uh, yes, uh, uh, allow, um, allow it to be not so complete, then appearances can be fabricated. It allows fabrication. There's real parallels I find interesting between that and a teaching of the dependent origination of appearances. Once one has understood that teaching at a deep enough level and can hear in a different way these other, um, which to us sound very strange theistic systems, uh, often depending on your background. And then the question would be, well, why would God um, withdraw some of the light of that insight and uh, there's different answers there in this mythic system, partly because God's nature is infinite. And being infinite, um, God includes not just the transcendence um, of aspect that's beyond appearances, beyond form, beyond manifestation, but also includes the whole realm of manifestation, indeed all manifestation. Because God is infinite in one's nature, ain't soft without end in the Hebrew. That's one uh, part of an answer. And another part of the answer, which um, uh, in a way is, is also very beautiful, is because of God's desire. As in, you may have heard this, God um, desired to uh, know himself, to know herself through appearance, through manifestation. And so there's this desire to not remain <coughs> completely transcendent, unfabricated, without form, without manifestation. Uh, without all of that. And again, not to stretch it too much, but we can see the desire there and the relation between um, how clinging and craving work to fabricate appearance in the the wheel of dependent origination. But, uh, as it Luria goes even further, because all this, that kind of um, mythic uh, (coughs) metaphor, structure, uh, conceptual structure of the nature of God. Say all that. This idea of God withdrawing from a portion of His divine light, withdrawing, creating a region of less light. Um, th- that whole um, idea is from the perspective of the human only. From God's perspective, there is no withdrawing of light. There is no symptom. So, again. Uh, if, you, if you can feel into this a little bit, and actually see, oh, that's similar to this, uh, or has parallels with this uh, as a further stage of the teaching about fabrication, actually understanding both fabrication and unfabrication are empty, uh, that there's no duality there. So the teaching of fabrication and unfabricating and unfabricated is all from a certain perspective at another level, it's all uh, in, in Tibetan Dharma language, it's all equality. 
It's all empty. There is no duality there. So it's um, a teaching from a certain level of perspective. In Luria's uh, words, this is all from the perspective of human, uh, of the human only. It's not God's perspective. It's not an ultimate truth. Now, when I, uh, let's say, practice and um, get a sense, if I develop the art of my practice, of my meditative practice, and my skill with um, emptiness and playing with fabrication and appearance and unfabricating, when I uh, do that and develop that, then I can ask at a certain point, at any point perhaps, whose mind is this? Whose awareness is this? Whose wisdom is is this? Um, because I, I can see it is not self. It is not my awareness. There's a real um, developed uh, perception possible. This awareness is not self. So really important practice to, to cultivate. But and at the same time, it's not separate from appearances. And if I'm practicing in a certain way, it's not separate from the divine appearances that I sense. And I sense too, uh, whose, mi- whose mind, I ask to whose mind is this? Because it, it's not self, it's not separate from appearances or divine appearances beyond time. It's empty. Whose mind is that? Um, I cannot... Uh, I'll get the sense in asking that as a meditative question that um, uh, both conceptually and experientially it's we could say I see my this mind so-called my mind is not separate from this Buddha nature is not separate from the cosmic Buddha or the ultimate as Mipam described it is not separate from um, uh, this ultimate mind, or God, the mind, the awareness of God, or the divine. So, not just conceptually, but experientially, I can open up that sense. And why is that important? First of all, it's very beautiful, very freeing um, experience of the divine, but it gives uh, a sense of my being, my citta, participating in the divine at the deepest level. And this this is actually a hinge point. This idea of participation in the divine is a hinge point in terms of trying to um, uh, create or offer conceptual frameworks that support a sense of the divinity, of divinity. comes in, there are many, many possible flavors of participation, but but you know, the other day, um, the other week, my friend took me to uh, a beautiful stretch of the river, of the River Dart, I'd never been there before, and uh, and there was a bend in the river, and uh, there was no one there, we were there alone, it was a cold day beautiful day, beautiful autumn day, and there was sort of um, steep cliffside on the other side of the river and uh, tree full of trees and sort of wooded and uh, really, really gorgeous. And the um, colours of autumn and the leaves 
falling on the water. And I was um, sitting there, uh, opening to, to the whole scene and taking it in and the beauty of it. And in, into my mind suddenly came a, a, a line or a fragment even from uh, Thomas Merton. Day unto day uttereth speech was what I remembered. I can't even remember if that's the right thing or if it's half a sentence or what the context was. I think it's the beginning of a, of a passage of writing. Day unto day uttereth speech, whether he's quoting someone else or what, I, d- I don't know. Um, wasn't even sure if I was remembering it right. But day unto day uttereth speech. I had no idea what it meant or what he meant by it or uh, what the original thing meant. But it was something that uh, uh, ignited something in me, in in, in my heart and mind and soul and in the perception. Um, As I was looking at at the river and the autumn scene and and the beauty there. And I didn't quite know what it meant. But that poetic uh, phrase uh, um, came into the perception and shaped and opened the perception in in a certain way. It's actually quite difficult to describe. So here I am sitting by the river, a beautiful spot and and everything that's there. And As always, there's many ways of looking. It's only a a lack of meditative skill or, or as I said, a conceptual frameworks that are too constraining, um, whether we realize it or not, that actually limit our ways of looking. So, very possible in that situation to see um, um, to see that scene only uh, sensually, in the sense of oh, pretty colours of autumn, yellow and red and gold, and and um, how they reflect in the water. And one is just really, if you like, responding. Um, or or tuning in at the level uh, of purely sensual um, pleasure, if if such a thing exists, or you know, pretty colours there, um, is one way of looking. Or, of course, it being autumn, one could um, uh, be filled with a sense of of impermanence and reflect on impermanence. The leaves falling onto the river and swept gently along by the current, and one could. Um, that could be what one is sort of tuning into and, and what colors and shapes the perception. Or a different variation of the whole process of, of nature moving, the river flowing, the decay, the uh, you know, growth and then the decay and the whole cycle that the process one could tune into that. That would be a way of seeing, a way of looking, um, supported by the conceptual framework of the process, etc. But uh, what was there for me was somehow triggered by this day unto day uttereth speech, this fragment of writing, this poetic, uh, uh, these poetic words whose meaning I couldn't really say. There was really a beautiful and very difficult to describe sense of participation, a kind of cosmology um, or cosmopoesis, actually, if we use the word, was. Uh, was there, was opened for me. In other words, the whole cosmos, including myself um, and the whole scene there and the whole of nature, um, was seen in a, in a particular um, 
in a particular way, was felt in a particular way that involved participation and um, and particularly that the echoes of that of those were somehow as if the trees were speaking or the cosmos was speaking. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. The cosmos was speaking, but obviously using the word speaking um, poetically. So there was this poetic sense of, of speech, the cosmos as divine speech, and of my being participating in that. I could describe more, but it's actually not that important. And um, Part of what I want to draw attention to is... Um, One may say, a person might say, um, I sensed, or I felt, I, I, I sense, I feel I am participating in something large. In other words, the, the kinds of sense of participation we can have um, uh, in, in terms of the way we sense the cosmos um, are, are varied. So many people might say, I sense, feel, and I'm participating in something large of us, but what was characteristic about this sense was um, that I did not, it did not only refer to the fact that I was aware of or thinking of a vast web or a vast net of physical objects um, or more dynamically physical events or, or processes uh, uh, in which I participate, my body breathing back and forth, the autumn air, etc., my uh, even just like sweat coming from my body or how uh, into the air or how I'm, uh, this body arose out of the earth and the elements and that kind of um, level, it's, it's a horizontal level of uh, participation there. So that kind of um, participation, which sometimes people um, uh, sense or, or want to emphasize is what I would call a participation at, at, at a horizontal level, of the, the level of, say, physicality. But here, the sense of participation also involved levels other than the physical, physical material in, in the ways that we usually construe physicality, materiality in, in the modernist culture. I don't know, spiritual, soulful, mental, d- divine, really. And divine in both... Um, a transcendent and an imminent aspect. So part of what was mixed in there was um, the the sense of the unfabricated shining through, but it was only part of it. There was a kind of um, vague cosmopoesis. I'll come back to this word vague because um, uh, it's actually important to realize that a lot of the um, experiences we have that are tied into conceptual frameworks that are quite vague, and that does not matter. So I'll, I'll return to that. But there was a kind of, if you like, vague, um, poetic sense of the cosmos, very much involving this multi-leveled um, participation, a participation um, in in the sense, uh, or at levels that were beyond the physical, that involved my mind, my awareness, the roots of that, and the sense of um, the root of that in the unfabricated, if you like, 
uh, etc. Now, I know um, many people, or some people would say, just as a, as a philosophical point, um, I know many people say, well, you can't prove that that's there, these other levels. Uh, and that's absolutely right, and I, I alluded to this before. Um, it, we're talking here about realms of experience or dimensions of experience, um, and conceptual frames they are not in the realm of... Um, uh, verifiability as it is scientifically defined. So we're not actually in the business of proving and nor are we um, in the realm of what's provable, verifiable according to the um, paradigms of, um, of, uh, as defined by science. But so what? So what? We're talking about um, experience, perception, uh, deep, uh, life-changing, important, these kinds of things uh, that matter to us deeply. And so what if it's not in the realm of the, of the provable or the scientifically uh, verifiable? I wonder sometimes um, whether that kind of perception, I know I only described it vaguely, but I wonder whether that kind of perception, uh, that sense of participation at other levels, the sense of a kind of vague cosmopoesis or cosmopoesis that involves that kind of thing that I described, um, whether that's, I wonder whether it's not available to most people. I wonder if it's gone out of fashion in some ways, um, meaning that it's not really supported as a perception um, for people these days, because people don't read so much about that sort of thing or don't talk about it or hear about it. And, and because of that, it's not supported as an actual experience that can open. Um, or I wonder whether people do actually experience that, but um, are kind of clumsy in trying to communicate it or express it or... Uh, li limited because they don't have the conceptual frameworks or the vocabulary or, or a little lazy or shy. So I wonder um, actually about all this stuff in, in the imaginal and the cosmopoesis, this, this stuff, whether um, it's more prevalent uh, than one might assume or whether there's reasons why it's not prevalent because it's actually not supported um, through because of uh, not being talked about, not being shared, not being given conceptual structures that support it. So that, what I was describing by the river, in a way, um, as I said, mixes um, 
mixes a sense of the unfabricated shining through and also a kind of cosmopoesis or theophany, um, the divine speech coming through nature uh, that was more than what we usually mean when we sort of think of poetic metaphors. It was... It wasn't that I heard any words, um, wasn't that literal, but it was um, something that was palpable, that made a very deep uh, impression, more than just a, a way of speaking about something. But this was a mixture of the unfabricated shining through and a kind of um, cosmopoetic theophany there. Uh, as we said, as I said, um, there are there are we we could say three possibilities: um, the un, well of the divine appearing through appearance, of the unfabricated shining through in the authentic unfabricated. There's the um, sort of universal awareness or universal love, other kind of more common um, senses of the divine in a universal uh, and impersonal way shining through. And then there's a third possibility or, or, or de, um, range of possibilities that involve um, the imaginal and, 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 and theophany and cosmopoetics. I mean, the divine coming through particular and particular ways, particular appearances through the particularities of a person, their personhood, etc. And the particular particular face of of the divine in that way. Um, and again, just a philosophical point: a, a, a person may say, "Well, yes, okay, you had such an experience, or this, or many of the other experiences that I, I describe um, that people have had, or, or, or I share with you." And the person say, "Well, but it may be that it turns out not to be true, or it's not true." Um, this is, again, such an idea, I wonder whether it uh, falls into kind of a, a tight and narrow and not fully opened up conception of truth, that either it is or it isn't true. It's a way of regarding truth and reality that's um, very understandable, given how we've been taught to conceive and think of things. But... Maybe it's not. Uh, it doesn't have to be in that in that tight camp. It either is true or is not true. But as I said said several times in this retreat, the whole notion of reality and truth needs opening out, kind of um, filling out the range. We need to be a little more sophisticated with what we're talking about. And here, in these kind of experiences, as I said, we're concerned with perception meaning experience, and also meaningfulness. And it's important to realize that this is what matters to us as human beings. Um, perception and experience, of course, matters. Our experience matters to us. And meaningfulness matters to us as human beings. And they matter to us deeply, deeply. So it's not so much, can I prove this or that, um, but experience matters, the range and the kinds of experience and the depth of experience and our um, sense and taste of meaningfulness and the depth of meaningfulness. We need to realize this is what matters to us. And these are constructed. 
perception, experience, appearance, these are constructed and fabricated um, inevitably so that subjectivity, my subjectivity is involved. So right there, there's an opening up of um, the, the whole sort of tight way of regarding truth because we're dealing with perception and meaningfulness there um, and we're acknowledging that they're constructed inevitably they involve the subject not simply talking about something that's independently object or called objectively real meaningfulness meaning and meaninglessness can never be purely objective can never be Uh, actually neither perception um, etc so perception and certainly meaningfulness are participatory, constructed and fabricated through the ways of looking, through the conception, etc., anyway. So the, these, uh, that insight is, is shared by postmodern understandings, and understandings of postmodern, many people have written about this. Um, I feel sometimes with postmodern writers, or writers about postmodern, or in that, in that sort of... Um, tradition, if you, if you like, if you can even call it tradition, um, or that direction, that thrust, um, in a way are limited through not having uh, meditative experience. So the participation is usually um, that they're talking about, they're pointing out the construction of perspective that they're talking about is usually um, to do with um, texts and words and quite gross level of perceptions. And even some of the um, people like Heidegger and others, well, all these people really lacked um, a, a depth of meditation to, that really enabled them, would, would have enabled them to really enter deeply in, into um, the subtleties of um what's involved in participating in experience and constructing and fabricating all the subtle conceptuality that's involved. They're way more subtle than language or words or thought, as they um, so often uh, pointed to. And when one um, has that degree then of understanding and learns actually to move uh, between multiple perspectives and realizing none are true um, it's quite different from a, just an intellectual philosophical understanding of say post-structuralism post-modernism that just um, deconstructs this or that perspective or this or that understanding or this or that piece of writing or philosophy or whatever it is and uh, kind of pulls it down or points out how it's constructed at a certain level Oftentimes what happens then is it, it just uh, veers towards a kind of nihilism um, uh, as if recognizing that all, pers- all perspectives are uh, not true, uh, if you like, or constructed, but there isn't then enough meditative skill because one hasn't developed that meditation to actually then realize oh these are all constructed actually constructed on a much more subtle and deep level all these perspectives I can actually um, realize that and then enter into multiple perspectives um, rather than just deconstructing and being left with a kind of cold barren nihilism or an intellectual game that kind of leads nowhere I can actually enter into different perspectives we talked about so much um, on this retreat and play with that meditatively 
and moving between different perspectives, different ways of looking, opening up different um, senses of the cosmos, different soul worlds, different ways of seeing, engaging cosmopoesis, all, all of it without knowing, without clinging to it as real, as ultimately real. This is true in that kind of tight way. But it gives me real, practical, lived um, fluidity and this this increased range in, in which I can uh, experience beauty of the different perspectives, doors open, worlds open. <clears throat> Rather than the kind of nihilism, barrenness that might come out of a purely intellectual postmodernism, I'm really interested, as I said, in uh, opening up the realm of experience, perception uh, that's possible for us, for us as human beings. But also, I'm really interested, rather than that kind of nihilism in keeping, uh, rather than that kind of uh, result of nihilism, I'm interested in keeping meaningfulness alive, in keeping the possibilities for meaningfulness alive, uh, keeping them as uh, viable options for us at times. In, I'm interested in conceptual structures and practices that support uh, deep and uh, rich um, and enriching sense of meaningfulness in our lives. Not um, to cling to a sense of mean, meaningfulness out of some kind of um, fear of our real existential situation, not to cling to it at all. Um, it's an option. It's at times there is um, different kinds of me- sense of meaningfulness. We can have sense of um, that deep meaningfulness to our lives. And at times, it's not there and it's not needed. So when, for instance, if there's um, the perception of the unfabricated shining through everything, that's beyond meaningfulness. Um, and it's an experience of the divine, but in a way it dissolves any sense of uh, or need for meaningfulness at that time. And yet there are other and dimensions of the being, the soul, the psyche that need meaningfulness, of which meaningfulness is actually an integral part. So I'm interested in that, as in not to cling to it all the time, cling to a certain idea or cling to a certain experience of meaningfulness, but to have it as a viable option, something we move in and out of, and in, in rich and wide and deep ways, alive ways, that that is open. So... Um, of course, we can deconstruct meaningfulness. Uh, um, we can do it in many in many ways, but not only do that. We can, and if I talk about meaningfulness, I'm going to come back to this, but in relation to all this uh, question of the divine, but um, meaningfulness we can realize has no inherent existence, not independent of the subject of my mind, of the concept. Of course not. But again, we fall so easily into this this. Um, polarized or dualistic thinking, um, either it's real in some kind of um, purely objective way, in the way I understand objects as being different, separate from the subject, from, from me and my consciousness. Either it's real in that way, the meaningfulness of my life or this aspect of meaningfulness, or I am just making it up and therefore it's unreal in the way that I narrowly conceive of real. 
You can see all this is so easy for us to assume that. Either the cosmos or life or my life is is meaningful in a real way, which somehow means this independently objective way, or I'm making it up. It's either one or the other. Um, but can I see? Actually, no. It has no inherent existence. It's not independent of the consciousness. And yet it still has validity, because I'm not falling into that separation of subject and object, subject and world, cosmos, uh, that whole um, conceptual framework ideology lack of understanding, if you like. So, <clears throat> really interested in this dimension of meaningfulness, um, or this, um, these experiences of, of, the experience of meaningfulness in our lives. And that comes, I'll revisit this uh, later, but that comes through the personal divine rather than the universal divine, uh, or the impersonal divine. So it's through the experience of um, <clears throat> images, as we have been talking about them, with this sense of um, being rooted in archetypes and daemons and other levels that want something from me in my life. In um, This meaningfulness is through Th- those kind of experiences of the divine, the, the, um, in images and in seeing um, my life or my person or uh, another person's life, another person's personhood um, as reflecting or rooted in or mirroring, um, originated in um, archetypes, daemons, some other level that's, that, that's retaining of the personal and the particular. So I'm going to... Uh, revisit that, but all uh, that, that's implied, uh, part of what's implied there is that um, then, then how to tie, I'm revisiting this question, how then to tie this understanding of emptiness and, and the unfabricated with this sense of the more personal divine, because that's where the, um, the experience, if you like, of meaningfulness uh, uh, is, is possible. So we still have to tie them together, or, or we're interested in tying them together. For someone like Henri Corbin, um, he is, is wor- was working, if you like, from really a kind of Platonic or Neoplatonic um, sort of conceptual structural philosophy, um, or variations on that. I'm not going to go into details um, of, of that and describe that. We don't have time. But he was working in that kind of framework. And... Um, in that kind of framework, there is, um, or that kind of theology, if you like, there is um, this ultimate reality, which is very akin, as we said, to the um, unfabricated, the Neoplatonist one. Um, in, in Latin, sometimes they call it the deitas absconditas, the hidden God. It's inaccessible to the senses or to any manifestation in form or image. A hidden God or Godhead beyond um, if you like, human accessibility. <coughs> and when there is that as a sort of theological construct, then um, the human being needs angels uh, as um, uh, to span the, the, the sort of chasm, the abyss between the Godhead and the human. They are, if you like, images of God. Uh, as
as we talked about, theophanies. Um, for Corbett, uh, he actually held that it was impossible to have an experience of this un- deus absconditus, and he held any such experience to be um, a sort of self-delusion, if, if I read him right. But then again, you know, he, he almost certainly... Um, didn't was never given the kind of or, or taught the kind of meditative um, tools and arts that I've been describing in terms of unfabricating unfabricating that would actually um, uh, help him to move towards that and have that kind of experience. But in that system, there is a kind of transcendent God, and then um, one needs the images to um, to be the theophanies, to, to have the experience of God, because I cannot have an experience of this inaccessible, transcendent God in that kind of thinking. Uh, so in that system, the angels are, I mean, it's quite an elaborate system, but uh, they are tied together, but there's a kind of they span this this chasm, if you like, the imaginal figures. But he also, uh, and stay with Corbin for a minute. He also, um, for for him, uh, would hold the human imagination, um, uh, and would would regard it as is distinct from the divine imagination, but actually kind of continuous with it. In other words, we're back to what I was describing earlier, this realization that we can have, this perspective that we can have in a very um, palpable way. Yes, it's a concept, but it's also a kind of experience, if you like, that comes out of that concept and out of the meditative um, play and meditative seeing that my mind, which includes my awareness, that includes my imagination, um, is not separate from God's. Uh, imagination, God's mind. So, and especially when we tend towards Gnosis, when there's a lot of emptiness and the malleability in the seeing, when there's very little clinging, when there's uh, a lot of insight around, we're playing in that kind of tantric way, then we really sense then, or can sense, that the imagination um, is not separate from God's imagination, so to speak. God's imagination um, is manifesting through my imagination. My imagination is a manifestation of God's imagination. So, uh, and even for, for Corbin, that's a, that there's a kind of theological structure there. As I said, um, I'm actually quote, quoting someone called Thomas Cheatham, who writes a lot about Corbin. So, the human imagination for Corbin is distinct from, but continuous with the divine imagination. You can see how that parallels very much what, what I was talking about earlier. Whose mind is this? Being that it's not self, it's not separate from divine appearances, it's beyond time and it's empty. I can sense, I can conceive it as not separate. This mind, this awareness, this imagination is not separate from uh, God, God's mind, from the ultimate mind, from the Buddha nature, etc. And then this experience that we... Um, I would say is inevitable for someone practicing, doing imaginal practice after a while and practicing deeply with imaginations. You have a sense of, yes, creating an image, but also discovering an image. So creating uh, maybe a soul world or a cosmo, uh, cosmopoetic uh, cosmos, a sense of the cosmos or, or this image or whatever that comes, um, but also discovering it. 
So yes, it's my mind creating it. I can have that sense of it and I can acknowledge that. We've touched on this a little bit before. But I also have the sense of somehow it has some kind of autonomous existence. We could say, because it's in the mind of God, it's in the divine mind, it's, in the, it's part of the Buddha nature, the potential of the Buddha nature. Let's stop there and um, pick up a little further later on. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.